yeah, these are all things that you have to think about and and stay concentrated on. And this is why you say that you should finish a race as mentally as exhausted as you are physically. And we can see that in the pros. They just have to be there um, 100% of the time. And This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. I'm your host, Jordan Donnelly, and on my left is former Australian Ironman champion and head coach of Trivelo Coaching, Jared Donnelly. In today's episode, we are dissecting everything that has happened over the spring classics racing season of the past few weeks. We've just gotten back from an epic uh, two weeks over in Belgium, the Flanders region and France. And we have to say that there is copious amounts of lessons that we've been able to learn in just two weeks. It feels like so much has happened and uh, it doesn't just apply to bike racing. And in today's episode, we really want to discuss how everything we've seen happen, everything we've experienced personally, as well as everything we've seen happen from uh, the professional level has uh, taught us uh, so much about what you can do in your own bike racing, whether you're in triathlon, cycling, or um, running. Uh, the lessons that we've learned, we want to talk about today, are really applicable to um, every single amateur athlete out there. So we can't wait to dive into it. A uh, massive episode ahead. Uh, a big one to discuss today. I know we're going to talk for a fair bit about the Spring Classics and how exciting it's been. Before we get to that, what is your gratitude? Thanks, George. Um, yes, uh, it's been an amazing couple of weeks uh, to be back in Belgium. We've talked about it on the podcast many times over the last 170 episodes. And it was really good to be back there after uh, 2019's the last time we were there. So um, all the hype before it um, lived up to its expectations. It was one of the all-time best trips I've ever been on. Um, and look, there's too many gratitudes, really. Uh, I, I just I have 50 that I could say, um, but I'm going to say one that's, um, it seems insignificant, but it, it allowed us to have more of an enjoyable tour as a group um, by the fact that we had um, Patrick, our guide from Belgium, who happens to be uh, the father-in-law of one of our one of our main men, Dasha, Dasha Young, for those who know Dasha, he's... Um, He's won two Austral track titles. Um, he's a bit of a gun cyclist, but uh, his father-in-law lives in Belgium. He's, uh, his daughter, Tina, is married to Dasha. And over the years, Patrick has volunteered to drive his car in front of our group um, each day. And that doesn't seem much to those listeners out there, but when you're in a foreign country and every 100 metres is another turn left or right or straight ahead choice, um, and you're trying to get get a circuit going or, or a training session uh, to have a car in front of you, a lead car, um, telling you which way to go and saying to him, I want to ride 120K, I want to have 1,500 metres worth of climbing and he just plots it out for me and I want to see some of the better better climbs, show the, show the boys some of the the, uh, the really good uh, climbs such as the Quarum, like the Koppenberg and the Paderberg and all those things and he'll take us around. and. And the second part about that gratitude is if you're doing that by yourself, and you can do this by yourself, you don't need a guide um, uh, because you can just put a map and make, make the effort to make your own map the night before and put it onto your Garmin and follow, follow what the Garmin's telling you to do. But the thing about that is you're continually looking down and you're not looking around wherever you're going. And the enjoyment factor of looking around and taking in the scenery is the key. And so when that that looking down at your garments taken away from you, the ride becomes so much more enjoyable 
because you're actually enjoying the roads and the countryside and not worried about am I lost um, or what's coming up in the next one minute? Am I turning left, right or going straight ahead? So so my gratitude is around Patrick and and I've known him since 2015 when I first met him. Um, so it's been eight years of, um, of, of you know, him coming to Australia and, and us showing him around here and him doing things for us. But I'm so grateful for our relationship uh, and I'm sure the uh, 11 riders on our tour um, felt the same way that uh, without him, um, it, it is such a, a frustrating experience to, to continually have to stop and find out where you are in a country where you, do, you know there's so many great places to go to to ride on, and he knows them all. Um, uh, and that, that's my gratitude. Yeah, we definitely experienced uh, the range of rides when Patrick was uh, taking us around. It was just so easy just to enjoy the ride. And when we had to kind of create a route ourselves, there was a lot of stopping and a lot of misturns, which is natural whenever you're traveling somewhere new. Um, but also we had a, a local rider, which is actually Pete, Patrick's son, uh, just take us once for a ride. And he um, just following him was fine. So, And I know a lot of people do that. They try and uh, meet up with anyone in the local area and just get them to take them on some paths. And then, again, you don't have to worry about looking at maps or anything. You can just get taken by a local. And uh, one of the guys in our group actually had done that in America. He had Strava stalked someone where he was going and what kind of rides they were doing and actually messaged them on Strava. And when, when he got there, he said, oh, can we – or he organized to go for a ride with them before he got there and then ended up building a really good relationship. So that's a good strategy as well. Uh, my, there's so much gratitude for the trip. The whole, everything about the trip was, um, yeah, I was just constantly grateful. Um, the fact that our bikes were mostly all good, although we did many trips to the Belgian bike store back and forth. I think there was 20 trips. They were, they knew us as if we were uh, regular customers by the end. Um, I was going to say, you know, a lack of crashes and injury because we got through so much of the trip with, um, it's, it's quite sketchy riding in some parts and we just had done so well to avoid a lot of crashes and then we'll talk about this but in Roubaix we had four crashes uh, in the actual race and thankfully three of the riders were fine and one broke his collarbone so um, I was grateful that I guess that happened in the last ride of the trip. Uh, thankful to the weather gods for giving us the true Flanders experience early on and we had to ride through a lot of rain and mud and cold and then the weather just completely cleared up and we had the purest blue sky days, which, as you said, you never had that good weather uh, in Belgium before. And I guess this is where I get to with my specific gratitude, which is uh, we were on one of the rides. It was one of the most enjoyable rides of the trip where it was just perfect day, no wind. We were following Patrick, so we were just able to enjoy the scenery. We were cruising. We weren't going too hard. And I said to myself, I reckon 60 times in the ride, how good is this? Just how good is this? I was looking around going, how good is this? And then one of the guys came up to me and just said, uh, if you ask me what my gratitude is, this is it. And because he's a, he's a podcast listener and um, – yeah, I just laughed at that. I thought you couldn't have summed it up any better. And so, um, yeah, that's definitely it for me. And uh, I guess with that, we want to dive into uh, what's been happening in the last few weeks with the Spring Classics and what's what's caught our attention and what's worth talking about that we that helps us. Uh, as always, we want to improve um, ourselves when we watch the pros race. And it's hard to compare to the pros because they're absolutely different animals. And that was the biggest thing I got from, again, watching them live and doing the same climbs as them. They're just absolute animals but start us off with dad what's the first thing that caught your attention that's that's worth talking about the conditions that we had for flanders were the worst conditions i've had in five uh flanders races or rides that i've done the grand fondo and the roubaix seven days later was the complete opposite it was perfect conditions 
Um, so we had epic rain, sideways winds, sleeting rain, and it was just, just you know, Patrick actually said, you are true Flandrians now. You've ridden in the most hardest conditions that he's seen. Um, so it was really great to, to actually experience it at, at its worst. Um, that sounds a bit a bit uh, masochistic a bit I think but um, but yeah it is really good to to get through it and gee you're tested um, continually with the cold in your feet and your hands and can't see and the cobbles are absolutely saturated trying to ride up a hill and you know that's where the gear selection and and tire pressure comes into it so much and and had I not learnt from the previous years about having tire pressure too high, you just can't ride wet cobbles with the tire pressure, you know, basically anything above seventy or 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 around that area is too is too high power pressure, and you just your back wheel just slips um, every time you put the power down. So. Um, I would, and I would, on that PSI note, I would say that not one person had their um, tire pressure above fifty-five this time around. <laughs> yes. So, and yep. and one of the lighter guys had his tire pressure at thirty-eight. So, <laughs> yep. I was so. shocked how low you could have it, and mm. and I was amazed how good the grip was. Mm. Um, it was such a different ride when you had the tire pressure down, and there is a few problems with that, and which we'll talk about um, with punctures, etc. But the lower the pressure you have, and obviously the heavier the rider, you can't have too low a pressure. But the lighter, lighter you are as a rider, you can really afford to drop your tire pressure down. And everybody's individual. There's not one tire pressure that's going to be right across the board for everybody. So that's one of the key things we learned in the, the group of eleven riders we had. Um, I don't think anybody had the same tire pressure. Um, they were basing their own tire pressure on their weight, and and we had plenty of practice during the week uh, to see uh, what what pressure was working. And but you can't be prepared for the difference in cobbles between Tour of Flanders and Paris Roubaix. The cobbles are extremely different in size, and and they're spread further apart, whereas uh, the, the roads are of Belgium seem like they're more the, the cobbles seem closer together or tidier so that the the bike rolls across the cobbles better but when we hit Arenberg forest for the first time I you know bottles were coming out of drink cages you know bikes were going left right and center because of the the violence of when your bike was hitting uh, the cobbles for the first time Arenberg forest is you know is really a a rough section of cobbles um, and there's plenty of other rough sections in the rest of the ride but that is the, the one we hit first and because we're not hitting it at speed the slower you go on the cobbles the worse it is um, for the bike to be bouncing around and and uh, and obviously they're the then therefore the pressure of the tires is key uh, to to uh, getting over the the cobbles as smoothly as you can and the faster you can ride the easier the cobbles are when but it is hard to ride fast on the cobbles because they're so debilitating and and so draining on your legs so there's so much that goes into it um and i would add a caveat to that that i wouldn't say i think easy is the wrong word i think um the faster you're going you're manageable. getting over them faster but it is i think it's harder to handle the bike so when it's slower you're getting bumped more but because you're going slower you can handle the bike a bit better so you're less chance of Sometimes you're slipping around no matter what, so it doesn't matter. But I think that does a bit of discredit to the pros. I think them hitting Arenberg at 60, 70K, it is so much harder for them to handle the actual bike um, compared to when you're going 20Ks an hour or 25Ks an hour and rolling into it. Yes, it's more bouncy. It's more uncomfortable because you are going slower across them, but I think it's your less chance of falling off. 
I have to disagree with you there, but we'll move on. <laughs> <laughs> Explain that to me. Why, why you think that? Uh, I just think um, when you've got more momentum, you're you're more on top of the road than you are when you're going slower. The bike seems to hit every pothole when you're going slower, um, and therefore you're going to bounce around more. What you just said, you do that does happen you do bounce around the bike more so therefore i'm just thinking it's a smoother ride it's more manageable ride when you're when you're going over the top of the surface at speed that that's all i that's that's my difference i think um yeah any, any times i was i was riding my best on the cobbles is when i was going fastest um yeah i agree with all that um i think we're saying the same thing just slightly different um i think yeah potentially more manageable but more the higher speed the more dangerous and um, yeah, i think it's does. just everything's coming at you so fast so it's just so much easier to hit a p- bad pothole and come flying off you know yeah, whereas true. Yeah. when you're going slower you're getting bounced around more and it's more un- it's really uncomfortable but you're kind of hitting everything slowly so it doesn't feel like you're going to necessarily fall off it's just it just sucks <laughs> yeah i think the danger factor is spot on it, it is um a little bit more um uh chaotic the consequences are huge um if you're going you're going to come off at, at speed as we found out um yeah so so that's kind of that i want i want to make that point that the conditions really contribute to um to the you know the experience of of riding these these events and you know if any if anybody gets a chance to go and do a grand fondo at, at uh during the spring classics and you know we've got We've got uh, Amstel Gold coming up. We've got Liège Baston. We've got Flesh Wallone. Um, so there's still quite a few more. And, you know, we had Ghent Wevelgem and E3, Skel There's so many classic events that, you know, in this space of March and April, um, starting with Milan San Remo, obviously. Um, so, so you've got all of these events that you could, you know, pretty much spend March and April riding your bike. Uh, and having a ball, um, but the conditions and the and the the difference in terrain is is quite vast across a lot of them, and you know not just the rain but the wind. And as we experienced uh, when you're out on those Belgian roads and it's so exposed, and you know 30, 40 kilometer crosswinds. Oh boy, it's hard work. Um, hard work staying on the road, um, and you know position on the in our little bunch of 11 the position was hugely different to the performance or the or the actual um training effect you were getting if you're on the front or if you were sitting you know on the side crosswind you know with a really good sit you were getting such an easier ride and i think a lot of the guys in the group really understood how important position is um and you know little things like the front two guys who were if we're riding two abreast and you know there's a group of five or six rows the front guy if the wind's coming from the left has to be in the middle of the road so the rest of the group get a sit you know just learning little things like that and if the wind's coming from the other direction you'd be on the other side of the road so you're giving the the group a sit so all these little things you start to understand how much uh, energy you're saving and when it comes to you putting that into a, a race scenario you know they're the things that um as you know i think i really saw Wout van Aert against vanderpoel Vanderpol was so aggressive in in Roubaix, and Wout van Aert was trying to 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 just follow all day. That seemed to be his plan, and Vanderpol's plan seemed to be as aggressive as possible. And you know, you could Vanderpol was on a, on a you know I think he was the best rider on the day, um, and and that's a great outcome that he won. But he was the most aggressive, and he would have burnt 
more fuel than than Van Aert, I think. And had Van Aert not got the puncture, we wouldn't we won't know what the outcome is going to be. But but certainly, I think that Van Aert was had a lot more savings because of the way he rode compared to Vanderpol. As an example of what I'm talking about, and we saw that play out at the early stages of. Tour Flanders in the men's uh, when the Alperson um, guys, including Vanderpool, got caught out in some crosswinds. And you and the like, as you said, the crosswinds can be crazy in that Flanders region. Um, and there's so much change of direction that you're constantly turning between a headwind, a tailwind, and a crosswind. And very early on, there were some big splits, and you just see straight away what happens um, in that the top eight people who are kind of rolling at the front in that diagonal echelon that you're describing are actually having an easier time even though they're doing turns in the front because they're in good positions and they're getting some protection and then everyone else that's in the gutter and then it's single file down and into the gutter is just every single individual person is working as hard as each other and you're just losing that draft effect that you're so used to with cycling and this is where these echelons form and then groups form and that happened and it took it took the Alberson guys half an hour to drive themselves back on uh, to the main peloton and even when you were watching, you could just see the guys that were rolling turns at the front, although they were working harder, were getting better sits as they were coming through the roll um, compared to everyone else that was sitting in the gutter. And I'm surprised that Vanderpol did so well after burning so many matches there, but maybe that hindered his result and that's why he wasn't able to stay with Pogacar um, in those back-end attacks. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, that's the, thought, the, the thing I want to lead on to next, George, is, you know, what is the difference between all these top riders uh, and how how do you decide who's going to win on any given day and what are the factors that contribute to that outcome? And and, and this is kind of why I wanted to talk about, you know, the, the little experiences we had as, as a group and what you've just summarized there in, in the race where, you know, it was playing into the hands of Pogacar and Van Aert with the Alperson guys getting separated so early in the race. They burned a match. That whole team burned a match, um, and including Vanderpol. Um, and, you know, Wout, Wout wasn't on form that day because Pogacar and Vanderpol rode away from him on one of the climbs. But but I think Pogacar had an easier ride than Vanderpol on that day, even though I think Vanderpol was, was – was in good two-week form there. But when you start looking at the results uh, over the last month, you know, on any given day, like one minute Vanderpol's beating Wout, then the, the next race Wout's beating Vanderpol and Pogacar's coming third and then he's coming second and then he's coming first. So there's just – they're either first, second, third or fourth on, on any one of the last, you know, eight races that they've done. Um, and so my, my question was, you know, who is at the moment, you know, the current form rider, and and you know, how do you come to the to the conclusion of to, to the answer to that? And it's it's not easy because I've I've been sitting here for an hour looking at the data, um, trying to come up with a, an answer, you know, and my uh, my persuasion is always to be, you know, Wout's the best and uh, forget the rest. But that's actually it's actually just so far from the truth there's there's really five riders now i think who are who are on any given day capable of winning any race at, at this current time and and for me it's Pogacar, Vanderpol, Van Aert, Roglic and, and Remco Evenepoel and those guys are are just absolutely dominating um world tour riding and, and it's like they're on another, another level and Pidcock could be pushed put in that um in that group as well um but he's not 
quite done much since he won it um, in Italy at uh, Strada Bianca. Yeah. So, um, and that was an outstanding ride there. But, you know, the point I'm trying to get across is these are the guys who who are in current good form, but what are the things that, that distinguish who wins on any given day? And and that's yeah, that's kind of where I want to go with this conversation. Yeah, well, one of my favorite things that you always say is it's never one thing. And um, as athletes, we tend to fall to this trap of, of of always looking to blame something, and we always try and look for one thing. And oh, this is the problem. That's the problem. Um, but yeah, it's it's always a combination of things. And I guess what's what's the conclusion you've come to with you know um, what does determine how the, the result of race day? Well, this. You've just summed it up, but I want to I want to hone in on two, and, and I think there's probably eight or nine things that will contribute, <laughs> yeah. but I just want to pick on two yeah. today, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think um, like experience should be mentioned as the third, but I, I don't want to use that. I, I just I think these guys are all experienced enough now. Um, They've done enough races, and they've they've all won key races. So so we can discount that, and I mean key races like monuments or Olympic games or world titles. They've all won them. Um, when you know when it counts, they've yeah they've, Big they've won those stages. Races. Yeah, yeah. So so I think uh, the timing of your attack, and then you won't believe it, but. There is some luck that pays plays a, a part in in the outcome, um, and I think we all you know the harder you work, the luckier you get. Um, that will that will play a role in it. But the example would be Roubaix, where where Van Aert got the puncture right when the two of them were were riding off into the sunset to to fight out who was going to win Roubaix, and and Van Aert gets a puncture. Mm. And that's the end of the ride for him. Mm-hmm. Basically, he can't win from that point on. Yeah. Um, so, so that that that's an example of how luck. You know, two riders who are in the best form of their career at this particular stage of the year um, leave the rest of the field behind them, and and then you know one gets a puncture and the other one doesn't, and one comes first, the other one comes third. Um, and you know, is it luck? that caused the puncture or is it poor technical advice, tire pressure, wrong tire? Um, you know, you could, you could use those examples as it's not luck. It's, it's poor decision-making on the team's behalf. And I'm, I'm not sitting here saying that, that that's what happened because I had four punctures myself um, at Roubaix. <laughs> In the one day, which, which I've never had in, yeah. in my whole life before. Still so, it's still so funny. Not funny for you, but still so funny that that happened. <laughs> no, and it's uh, it's very frustrating. And it becomes infuriating when yeah. <laughs> you just get back on your bike and, you know, you ride another five kilometers and everything seems fine and then you hit the cobbles again and get a pinch puncture again. The ironic thing was... You you made the decision a few days into the trip to change from tubeless to tube tires, and how that that kind of yeah, yeah worked against you in the end. And that's that's what I wanted to use the example of you know just an amateur making decisions. Um, and I, I'm the one who's ridden the most out of the whole tour. Uh, I've I've done you know five Roubaix and five um, Flanders, 
and here I was having the worst uh, equipment or tyre issues um, because I did change from uh, tubeless to tubed and I think for me that was probably a mistake. Um, I was running my tyre pressure around 50 and and funnily enough, my front tyre punctured four times, my rear didn't and, and that seemed weird to me as well. Um, but I think, you know, just the wrong cobble at the wrong time and, you know, there's so many things that can happen. Yeah, so you're not really sure about what's going yeah. on, but um, but yeah, look, I just I just feel like uh, at the end of the day, um, the the number one thing is when when you put the pressure on the other riders, and the timing of that is is the clear indicator of who's going to win. Yeah. And you know, you can have six goes at something, and and five times it doesn't work, and then yep. one time you do it, it works, and. Yep. And the example again, I'm going to keep using Roubaix a bit, but um, I want to use Pogacar at Flanders as well as another example. But just just stay with Vanderpol, and his aggressiveness at Van, at uh, Roubaix was was a real standout to me. And I I've been a little bit critical myself personally, just thinking that Wout's a more attacking rider and. Many people will disagree with me after I've just said that sentence, but but I just felt that his attacking mindset for Roubaix was way above everybody else's. He was, uh, I know that uh, whenever Vanderpol did something, Wout was you know aggressive as well, following him, but he was taking the role of a follower, not as a as the instigator. And and I love it when the instigator wins. And even though I'm I'm a uh, Wout Van Aert fan and I'm not such a fan of Vanderpol. I just thought that was fantastic what he did and he made the race and eventually he won. Whether the bad luck played the role in it, we'll never know. And when they came into the velodrome, the two of them side by side, who was going to win that sprint, you know, five out of five times it could be a different rider every time you know <laughs> so, had that multiple times. <laughs> yes and i think in the velodrome i actually think vanderpoel has got, got more chance than van art because we've seen vanderpoel can win um he won the cyclocross world title um, from a short sprint he also won uh flanders uh against last van year art. against yeah. van art from a short sprint and then van art beat him at uh at gent wevelgem um, with a long sprint, yeah. oh E3 it was sorry yeah. yeah E3 with a really long long sprint. Yeah. Um, so so the velodrome doesn't give you a long sprint. Um, it, you, you come off the bank and it's just a short sprint to the finish. So um, so I think Vanderpol probably would have won it, um, yeah. but we never know. So but yeah. the point is, um, if you're aggressive and you're trying to make the race, eventually you will succeed unless you're too aggressive and doing it at the wrong time. So that's why I said the timing of when to attack is the key thing. They're all going to attack. It's just mm-hmm. when do you do that attack? Do you do it early? Um, do you do it with 50K to go? Do you do it with 20K to go? Do you do it when um, when it looks like there's nothing happening? Do you do it when everybody's absolutely on their knees? And these are all the scenarios these riders are faced with because let's face it, they are all equal in ability, mm. give or take half a percent on any given mm. day. Yep. So we're not talking about differences in fitness here. We're talking about form only mm. and and when to attack and the timing of it. And, mm. and so, you know, how can Pogacar beat 
Vanderpol, you know, Remco, Roglic, Van Aert, and then how can one of those beat the other guys? Because they're all equally as good on any given day. And it's got to be with the timing of your attack. Um, and and that's the thing that I think could be a really good lesson for the listeners out there is to just thinking about what's happening in the race. And and one of the things I was I was talking to you guys about when we did the Grand Fondo was we had a group of guys who were racing against us as a Trivello team against this uh, group of German riders. And I was watching the German riders really closely to see who I thought was the strongest guy and who needed to be watched the most. And and you know they're things that I think the pros do very well. They're they're doing little mini testing attacks and seeing who's responding better on a day because you know you could be in form last week and then all of a sudden you lose you lose a little bit of form from fatigue or you've, it's the end of your six week period or it's the start of your your, your your six week build. You know it doesn't. It's really hard to know which each rider where they're at in any given week or day. So so all these little tests you'll get to see who's strong and who's not um and if other riders are pushing the pace you can watch the reaction of other riders um and i'm always looking at uh, what how they're pedaling um if they're riding a good cadence and all of a sudden they're under pressure and what do they do they go to a, a bigger gear that's a sign to me that they're they're losing a little bit of um their their fatigue is growing um riders who can hold form and there's a few riders who can who can hold beautiful form and not even look like they're under pressure and then one minute later they're dropped that's just the way they ride they ride with beautiful form whereas most riders will have good form until they're tired and then they'll start to get ragged and and the gear will be a bigger gear because they're trying to keep their heart rate down and they're all telltale signs of of who's struggling in the in the group around you and they're the things you should be looking for um when you're racing um in your club race or whether you're racing at the olympics the good riders are always watching the the competition to see who's looks like they're in form and who should i be worried about um and and that's that's part of when to attack um Mm. is to know that the only chance I'm going to get is if some – let's take Milan San Remo. This is a really good example. Um, when they got to um, um, the the um, the last climb when uh, the UAE uh, – I can't remember who the guy was. I thought it might have been Matteo Trenton, but it might not have been. Who was leading Pogacar up, up, the, up the climb. Um, and – he really split the field, and the only people who could follow was Wout van Aert, um, Van der Poel, and Mats Pedersen. And sorry, Garner and Pogacar. Garner, sorry, yeah, Garner and yep. Pogacar. Yep. Yeah, and and so uh, Van Aert w- was gapped by ten meters, and Van der Poel was behind Van Aert, and Pedersen was behind Van der Poel, and Garner, yeah. and Garner sorry. Yeah. Um, it's an irrelevant anyway, detail, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, the the person who had to, to bridge the gap was Wout van Aert. And and the only the only person who was getting a free ride was Vanderpol. And when he bridged that gap, then that gave Vanderpol a free ride to then attack Wout van Aert. And and that was a really good example of 
of you know just getting a little bit of a, a sit for 30 or 40 seconds will en- enable you to to do that 1% more than your opposition at the right time and you know that that that's what won in the race that and he got to the top of the climb with a 5 second gap because he'd ridden over the top of the other riders with that he had that free little ride behind Wout van Aert um, and then he was able to attack when the other guys were on their knees. They they would have kept going with Vanderpoel if they could have, but they couldn't because they'd done a little bit more effort on the climb than he had. And there's a great example of the timing of your jump when you know that your opposition is, you know, you know, struggling more than you are. Um, and he was able to hold that all the way to the finish. And actually, it went from five seconds to twelve seconds, I think, um, with um, Garner. Uh, Wout Van Aert and Pogacar chasing, and to me that that's that timing thing, and and then understanding what's happening in the group, um, how how are they coping with with the the attacks that are happening happening right now and then, and these are decisions you have to make instantly, and and the person who can who can just react rather than the person who has to think and then and then count to five seconds and then react. Those five seconds are going to cause you enormous trouble and massive fatigue because you have to do the effort for longer. And we've got some good club riders that, that we coach who are really good at that. Um, uh, a little guy Russell, who's an unbelievably good reactor at when a when a uh, uh, a move's made, he just naturally makes a decision to go, and and it saves him. 15, 20 seconds if he didn't go by hesitating for five seconds, instead of having to close a gap for 15, 20 seconds and burning a lot of energy, he's already on the wheel of the person who's attacked instantly because he reacted and didn't second guess himself. And the reason he reacted is because he rated the rider who was attacking. And so all of these things he does very well because he understands who he's riding and racing against. He knows their ability. He knows that if some rider goes up the road, they're not a threat to him, so he won't do that. So you can learn a lot from watching other people. Um, And watching the pros do this because they're all very similar ability and fitness and experience, then it it is coming down to when to attack and, and understanding who's tired at any given time because they've done an effort. And if we go back to Flanders as the other example, when uh, I think it was Italianberg, that last climb where Vanderpol got out of the seat and attacked um, Van Aert and Pogacar and got a gap, and Van Aert couldn't close the gap by the time they got to the top of the end of the Italianberg cobble section. It was still uphill all the way um, for another three or four minutes, and the two of them rode away from Van Aert, and that's that was basically the, the race there and then for Van Aert was gone. Um, and, you know, that was an example of really good tactics by Vanderpol um, to surprise Van Aert. He came from behind him, surprised him, put five metres into him. Only Pogacar could react. And Van Aert could not close the gap because two were working against one. Another great example of surprise attack, you know, when, when you're not ready for it. Um, and then using Pogacar on the uh, Quaramont, um, uh, he got a beautiful uh, lead into their – uh, from the UAE teammate, and he just rode them off the wheel, basically. 
it was one of the more outstanding attacks that I've seen in a long time. Um, and as much as Vanderpol tried, uh, Pogacar just rode higher power. And once once it's one against one with no ability to sit, Pogacar was a better rider on the day and, and you know, eventually rode away and won solo, which is which is, uh, you know, again, an, a, an absolutely brilliant result for someone who deserved it because he made the race. Um, so I'm talking about two races and and I can use the women's race as well as an, another example with Alison Jackson from, uh, from Canada. Um, she was just so aggressive all day long and the second bunch were closing in on the breakaway bunch of which she was doing most of the work and trying to get the rest of her group to stay away. And, you know, the logic says that if you come to the finish line with 20 riders compared to 10 riders, you're going to have better chance with 10 riders of winning than you are with 20. So logic would say you wouldn't want the other group to catch up. And the other group had unbelievable sprinters in their group um, who could possibly beat everybody in the first group. So... For me, I was disappointed with the other girls who weren't really helping to keep the other group away. But, um, but she made the race by by even though they got to close to what seven seconds was it mm, the, seconds, the chase yeah. group got yeah, and then she got in, got into the velodrome and basically outsprinted them all. And it was just a brilliant win, um, one deserved by someone who attacked the race. Um, and and made sure that when it looked like it was going to get closed down, that it's never over till it's over. Um, and if you just keep the pressure on, um, Pitcock, um, that happened to him in um, at Strata Bianca. The the chasing bunch got to within I think four seconds, and he still won solo. Um, so just because that you think that you're going to get caught, you shouldn't drop your bundle and just. Get, throw the white flag up and let the other bunch close that last 50 metres, you should make them work for it. Um, you've done the work to get in the break. You, you know, it, it shouldn't be over till it's over in my opinion. And so there's a lot There's a lot I've said about tactics and and when to make it and, and luck, but they're the things I wanted to get, cross, get across in this podcast that the, the, the everyday cyclist can think about in his D-grade club race or his A-grade club race or his master's club race, that there are things you can do other than your current fitness that will help you be, be more of a chance in, in riding in your local bunch uh, on a Saturday or a Sunday or midweek. Where you're doing these little little race mini races in your bunch, or whether you've got a number on your back and you're doing a proper race in a club race, and there's so much that you can that you can do more than you think um, that will give you a better outcome. It's, yeah, it's it's absolutely brilliant topic, and um, there's so much in in everything you've said there about trying to combine all these factors of your actual ability versus when you time your attack and and how much luck you have, and um, that Alison Jackson example I just think is is as brilliant as an example you're going to get because um, there's a great there's great footage of um, when the chase group was yeah, getting within that 30 seconds, 20 seconds, 15 seconds. There's great footage of the lead group and they're all looking at each other and no one's willing to keep the pressure on. The chase group's catching them. They're getting that close. And then she just gets on the front and launches an attack and it sparks that whole front group again um, and they pick the pace up. And when you, see, you look at that attack, 
it looks like a little bit of a last ditch effort. You know, there's still 20k to go or 30k to go. Um, and it looks like, oh, you're just trying to make the most of this, um, see what you can do, but it's probably hopeless because, you know, 99 times out of 100 in this situation, that chase group are all working really well together and they're going to catch them. Um, but that was the move that sparked that speed again and kept them away. And exactly what you're saying, the person who's, you know, the most daring um, deserves to win and they held off that gap. And because of that, um, she did that multiple times, but that specific one, it's it's it was a great just example of exactly what you're saying. And, uh, making your own luck and getting into the velodrome and um, they they got into the velodrome 15 seconds ahead of that chase pack still and uh, gave her a chance the best gave herself the best chance to win a sprint out of seven riders because uh, she knows she has a really good kick compared to 20 if if both groups joined and um, and in in the velodrome the exact same thing happened of what you're talking about the SD works rider. Um, Femke Marcus was in a perfect position right next to Alison Jackson. They were both fighting for um, that second wheel um, and Femke Marcus has a good kick on her as well. And uh, she just hit a bad patch in the velodrome and came straight down. Um, and that's her, you know, there's there's three quarters of a lap of the velodrome to go and that's her out of the race. And she's been in this front pack the whole time and that's that bad luck coming in as well. Um, and there's some funny... Uh, footage of that crash going around because it's they're calling it the ghost crash because she doesn't touch anyone's wheel. Um, she doesn't seem to hit anything specific. Um, some of the riders have said there was a bit of water on the velodrome in that section, but if you watch it in slow motion, she's just riding perfectly straight and then her wheel just slips underneath her on the velodrome and yeah, that's that's 200 meters to go. Um, she was fighting for that for that win and, and didn't get it. So, But Alison Jackson absolutely deserved it, I think, from what she was able to do. Um later in that race but I do want to keep diving into some of these um, examples that you spoke about because I just I do think it's it's a brilliant um, topic to think about with any form of racing not just bike racing but triathlon as well uh, and this concentration thing that you're talking about of of when to attack and and focusing on riders around you and knowing what to look for and it's not about does a rider look good necessarily you know they might have all the gear and might look flashy but you're more paying attention to those their actual performance so how are they pedaling and what's their form like and again you're just using these as potential examples you're trying to calibrate you know does how they look um, equate to how they're responding to attacks or how they're handling hard sections because someone might have really good form but as you said they get dropped off the back and someone might actually ride with horrible form um, or run with horrible form but they're actually really talented they just they just run with horrible form so you can't judge a book by its cover but um, we had an example of an athlete of ours uh, the recent 70.3 who was stuck in uh, one of the pelotons uh, in the 70.3 which is happening a lot lately um, with such packed fields um, and they found that on the uphills the the group they were with were riding too hard so they didn't want to go with them and then on the downhill they were you know, riding too poorly and not keeping even pressure and so they were catching up to them but they were constantly finding that the peloton was in the wrong pl- pl- place um, for them and it wasn't uh, specific to their race plan and their numbers, but they couldn't get ahead or co- or couldn't drop behind either because it it was stuffing up their race. And this is where paying attention and understanding the art of racing, uh, whether it's bike racing, running racing, or triathlon, is really really important because they could have they would have to start making an assessment of looking at the riders around them and deciding, okay, who's riding up the hills well, who's got good form. Um, who realistically could I just try and stay with on this uphill and then keep the pressure on and get past them on the downhill? Um, who looks like they're you know going to start fading later and they're going too hard early and it's not worth trying to go with them? And uh, these little factors of trying to adjust your race plan based on what's actually happening ahead of you. And I think the triathlon example is really fascinating because it's not as easy a bike as it 
as a bike race because in a bike race you just if you want to win you've got to stay with the lead pack that's you just no matter how hard they're going and we see this with Vanderpol and Pogacar and Van Aert no matter how hard they go you've got to be on their wheel um but I hadn't spoken to you about that triathlon example specifically but it's a really interesting one where you've kind of got to look around and and be really concentrating every second to make some pretty snap decisions about what am I going to do here am I going to try and keep getting my my race interrupted by this group that's around me or do i push a little bit harder in this section and go above my race plan just to get away from this because it's um going to suit me better i'm I'm going to assess the riders around me and they're actually going to be strong for the 90k so i'm happy to sit here um yeah these are all the things that you have to think about and and stay concentrated on and this is why you say that you should finish a race as mentally as exhausted as you are physically and we can see that in the pros they just have to be there um, 100% of the time and um, on that I do want to talk about the the Pogacar attacks on that second lap of um, the Quaramont at Flanders he gets a brilliant lead out from his UAE teammates and don't believe that Vanderpool and Van Aert expected him to attack on the second lap they expected him to go on the last one um, and the UAE just launched this really fast attack he was at the front and suddenly he put the pressure on and you see the aerial shot Vanderpool and Van Aert are 10-15 meters behind they were near the front of the race, but they weren't on Pogacar's wheel and they kind of panic and they have to ride around everyone to go get on his wheel. And when you look at the Strava segments, they actually rode a faster time than Pogacar on that second one, even though he attacked and he kind of had a bit of a gap towards the top, although they got on his wheel, um, but they've had to put in more of an effort. And just another example of uh, all these things coming together, it's never one reason, but potentially, you know, they've done a harder effort there because they weren't concentrating, even though it looks like Pogacar's burnt a match. Three of them basically get away from the group, but um, they've worked harder to get back on Pogacar's wheel than he did when he led the attack. Um, so I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, you've, you've brought up a whole lot of good points and the the Pogacar uh, Quaramont example was classic. Um, and, and that's just um, a little bit of laziness and positioning, poor positioning, because, you know, there are only, there are only a few places where the break can potentially happen and the Quaramont is one of those and sure they were going to have to do it again because they were doing three Quaramonts three three times up that same hill and two uh, Paderbergs so there was plenty more opportunities but you can't just um, guess that they're not going to be used at any point so you have mm. to be ready for all of them mm-hmm. and I think I think it's disrespectful to not be near your contenders yep. and they were quite a fair way behind and but what I talked about reacting before boy did they react yeah. they reacted violently <laughs> and yeah and yeah you know, and you're right they would have burnt matches doing that yep. um, in the triathlon example um, it is a tough one because there's so many factors that come into it with drafting, um, mm-hmm. and and you know you you might think that the group is strong enough. Say you're trying to ride, you know, 36 k's an hour as your average speed, and and if you have to ride 200 watts to get 36 k's an hour, and you're in a bunch that you're still doing 36 k's an hour after 20 or 30 k's of of you know can't get away from this group and you're only riding 180 watts then my opinion is that you're actually going to be able to run much better because you're pushing way lower watts and you're still getting the the result you want i'm not encouraging anybody to stay in bunches that's not what i'm saying it is sometimes impossible you've tried many times to go past the bunch and then all of a sudden they come back past you and this happens you know backwards and forwards for half an hour 
Um, if you really want to get away from the bunch, exactly what you said should happen. You should wait and be willing to burn a big match um, and and not do that early in the, in the race. But if you think that the bunch is going too slow and you're not happy with the average speed that you're doing now, it's come to it's like the example I used with 36 k's an hour, it's now back to 35 or 34. That's the time to leave that bunch. Um, and you need to actually do it in the hardest part of the course, not where it's easy for them to follow. You need to do it in a crosswind where they can't get a sit and you sit at the furthest point of the road to where the wind is legally. If the wind's coming from the right and you're on a road where you travel on the left-hand side and that's different in other countries, obviously. Um, So you need to be in the far left gutter so that no one sitting behind you is getting any free draft. And if the wind's coming from the other direction, you need to be as close to the middle of the line as you're allowed to be in a triathlon, which is there are rules against you know being in the middle of the road so um so burning a, a match is that there are times when i would say to to a, the athletes that i coach it's worth doing um if you're trying to ride 200 watts and you have to ride 350 watts for 30 seconds it is okay to do that if it means you're going to be able to ride uh, a better speed than you're riding with the group and that would be the decision you would make and you wouldn't know that until you've ridden for quite a bit of time um and, you know, if the road's flat and the wind is calm, it's easy to find that out. But if it, if it's got hills and it's windy, you've got no idea whether the speed is correct or not because you're sitting in a bunch where you're getting a lower power reading, which you're going to panic about because it's not what the reading you're supposed to be riding at. Um, and that's why you use all those other factors to, to make decisions. But, but yeah, you, there are times where you, you will have to, if you want to improve your, your uh, time, and time is related to the average speed, that you have to make a, a decision to burn a match and I'm all for that. This is why I just love racing. I love the art of racing, um, no matter what the sport is. And we focus heavily on bike racing and triathlon racing, but there's just so many nuances to it and so many factors, like you said earlier on, there's eight or nine or maybe 80 or 90 that, that come into play about what's happening. And I just love the concentration part and the mental side and the fact that you have to get really good at snap decisions and, and understanding what different contexts mean and you get that through experience and um and what to do in circumstances and um i've had plenty of experiences where you do it for the first time and you go i had no idea what to do then you you, you try something and then speak, speaking through it with you after and you go actually this is the right decision and you go right so next time you're in that context you know exactly what to do within a second and um how to do that and uh i just i just find the art of racing so fascinating when you compare the top five guys that you're talking about right now and how even they are in ability and there's been i just you know over the last decade it hasn't been this tight in in how matched they are and normally one person's a bit stronger or someone's in their in their form year and they're just too strong and the strongest rider kind of wins but in this sense it's it's coming down to all these other factors which to be honest for me makes the lottie Kopecky win uh, at flanders really really impressive because she's gone back to back at flanders two years in a row she broke away solo this year um, and I think given how hard it is to win a race and how many things have to go right and uh, exactly what you're talking about, you timing your attack perfectly, you being in form, um, you having some luck on your side, all to culminate in a win, uh, it just shows how hard it is to win a race and for you to be able to go back to back at the Tour of Flanders, um, I think shows how strong a ride you've actually done um, and how well you've executed that because um 
a lot of people can't do it. And Vanderpool did it um, in 21 and 22, going back to back. And I just think uh, if you're doing it as a one-off, you know, chapeau to you, unbelievable effort. But if you do it twice in a row, that is just uh, fantastic. And we were in the Belgian tent on the Quaramont, um, getting, we got to see the men come past three times and the women come past once. And anytime a Belgian is doing well, the whole tent is erupting. And um, it was it was quite uh, goosebumps worthy to see Lottie Kapeki come through the finish line as a Belgian to win the Tour of Flanders. And uh, the tent gives a standing ovation. Um, everyone's so happy. It was it was really you know spine tingling to to watch happen. And uh, we knew that happened. The the love for the Belgians, but the guys we were with, I don't think um, understood that kind of love that the Belgians had for their Belgian cyclists. Um, uh, and on a side note, we saw the amount of media attention that Wout was getting um, to the point where it is hard to see how much we, – we, you don't realize here in Australia how much media pressure he's in over there. Every single news report, every single thing that's happening, the lead week up to Flanders is about can Wout win, you know, and that is a lot of pressure to handle. And um, again, this just circles back to the same topics we're talking about in how much luck happens in the race because um, he had that crash. So he got back on his bike. He didn't seem too injured. He said after the race, it didn't affect him. He just didn't have the legs. But you don't know when you have a fall how much that actually does affect you. Um, you know, you can't actually quantify that. Um, there was one climb where uh, Van der Poel dropped his chain, um, and Van Art, you know, they and Pogacar got a 10, 15 meter gap, and the, the tent absolutely erupted. It was like being at the MCG. You know, everyone just sees their Belgian love getting up this hill, and Van der Poel kept pedaling his chain jumped back on and then he puts in a massive surge and again back gets back on them and this is just tying again to the fact that now van der Poel's done more work early on because he got caught, caught in the crosswinds more work than pogachar on the second quarter because he was just you know a few positions too back and he had to make up 10 meters his chain drops he has to do a big surge to get in the back of them maybe those things are all what culminated in the last climb um, where pogachar was able to get away from him and you just don't know it's a bit of everything but this is just racing and this is why we love talking about it yeah, you're spot on. The accumulation of, of efforts really took its toll and that's what uh, enabled Pogacar to, to actually get away. Um, and yeah, call it bad luck, call it bad positioning, call it timing, um, but they all add up. And and at that level, you can't afford to give anybody an inch. And I often say to a lot of the guys, uh, one of the examples we could use is uh, we, we do the Saturday ride sometimes where um, it's a figure eight and everybody knows where the figure eight starts and you need, in my opinion, if you're not such a good hill climber, to be near the front when you hit the first hill. And in, in my situation, I'm riding against a whole group of guys who are way better than I am. And so therefore, I'm not going to start at the back and give the guys who are already better than me 20 meters head start by, because the, the bunch size is, covers 20 meters, maybe 25 meters. I need to be at the front of that group. And they're little decisions that you should be making um, based on, you know, what's happening in the race or what's happening in the, in the scenario around you to enable you to get a better outcome. So what would be the point of me starting at the back you know, if I'm if I'm the 20th best rider, that's probably where I should start to get out of the way of the guys who are better than me. But that's not my mindset. My mindset is I need to be as close to the front as I can. So if I can hang on for this minute 30 climb, by the time we get to the top, I may still be in contact with the group. If I start at the back, I'll be 40, 50 meters off the back by the time we get to the top of the hill. 
and therefore I'm going to ride solo for the rest of the figure eight loop that we do. So they're examples of making good decisions to put yourself in better position to um, to help your weakness become a, a strength by by actually using your, your brains to to enable you to still be in the race. Um, and they're the things, you know, that's just one example of what you can be doing. Um, and, of course, as you said, if you're not thinking about those things and you're just riding and following wheels and physically putting efforts in but not actually thinking about what's happening right now, what's going to happen next, what, what hill is next, how far away are we from the hill, where should my position be? And even in our little um, Grand Fondo, where before we came into the uh, the Arenberg Forest, you could feel the tension in our pack of twenty riders. We were jostling for the front four or five places, trying not to get on the front. Um, so because it, it was quite a bit of a wind there, but trying to be close enough so that when we turned right onto the Arenberg, that you were, uh, at, you know, right at the beginning of of the of the bunch. And and they're examples of having to be thinking about the right things at the right time and not just daydreaming. Yeah, and we did want to kind of touch on our experiences of the the two races um, in comparison to the pros because it's it's really fascinating to do the essentially the same course, just less distance, you know, the same sectors, and see how you go with it, see how you go on these climbs with some fatigue in your legs because we ride some of the sectors fresh as well, and then compare it to the pros times. And that, to be honest, you just it just makes you feel like a shit bike rider because <laughs> it's really humbling just to go. Sometimes you think you're going pretty well, and then you look at the pros times, and they just seem like aliens. It is. Just absolutely absurd. But you touched on it before. You know, we um, we felt like true Flandrians in the Flanders Grand Fondo, uh, and we we thought about uh, racing it from the start because with any Grand Fondo, people you know, at the, at a lot of people are just getting through the day, um, which is a, a great way to you know, enjoy the experience. But um, we thought about going to the start uh, official start time and, and having a crack, but because it was so wet we just thought it'd be a bit risky to try and be racing around those roads. And I, I think that was a really good decision because it is quite dangerous with how many turns there are and the cobbles. Um, but we got through that day um, and suffered a lot in in those conditions. It was just cold, wet and windy from the start. Um, and that was an experience of just you know grinding through. And I laugh about the fact that um, we kind of, we, we all got split up a little bit um, into little pods, um, but our pod, there was a section between kind of 60 and, and 90K um, in the middle of there where you're going through these very open fields in, in Flanders and it's just constantly turning. Again, headwind for a couple of minutes, tailwind for a couple of minutes, crosswind for five minutes. And uh, in that 60 to 90K period, approximately an hour, I think there were two words spoken. You know, the, everyone went very quiet and we were just all trying to do some t- as long a turn on the front as you could handle before you jump off and try and let one of your teammates help. Um, but to me, that just kind of summarized the experience in how grueling it was. You were just focusing on getting through and you weren't, you were, couldn't put any more energy into talking or it was just head down. Not that enjoyable, <laughs> just just suffering through. But in uh, at the same time, in that section, we all said afterwards in hindsight that we were all saying the same thing to ourselves in our head that oh, this is an experience. You know, this is what this is about. And although it's tough and although it's super uncomfortable and I'm freezing, um, this this suffering is uh, all uh, is what it's about, and that was kind of a summary of our Flanders experience. Yeah, and look, Flanders, in you know, it's such a different ride because it's got so much climbing uh, on cobbles. 
Um, there's a lot of climbing off cobbles as well. Um, almost every time you turn a corner, there's another hill. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, there, you know, it's like doing 30 VO2 efforts of between one and two minutes um, and you're not riding on a smooth road. You're riding on a road that's throwing your bike around uh, and it's slippery and, you know, and there's other riders around you because it's a grand fondo. And they're uh, so steep. Could, yeah, they come off. You're gone. Yeah. They, they could be walking. Yeah. Um, cause they've come off and look, let's face it, we've seen the pros walking up the Koppenberg mm. and the, um, the Paderberg. So it's not, it's not, not just the, the amateurs walk, but, uh, once you mo- lose momentum on a steep, you know, 12% gradient, it, you're not getting back on your bike. Um, and so there's lots of people around you walking. So you're trying to fight your way around people who are walking on a narrow road. That's literally three bike widths, you know, wide. And and you're yelling out, you know, trying to be polite, yell out, get out of, get out of my way, um, otherwise I'm going to be stopped and I'm going to be walking with <laughs> yeah. you. So, yeah. um, so concentration on that was pretty epic. Um, and yeah, so you've gone from that to then jumping into the, the Roubaix experience, where it's going to be beautiful weather and not as windy as as that's uh, the least wind I've ever seen. I think. And look, it was the fastest pro race ever. Um, and you know, I don't think the riders are any more talented than they were last year or the year before. It's just the conditions were unbelievably perfect. And and for us, we had our own little race. We decided that we would ride, you know, at the front of the group and and make a race of it uh, and see see where we you know we ended up. And we did the 145k for both events. Um, and you know, the time it takes for that for those those Grand Fondos is an example of how hard the ride is because you know. 145k you shouldn't be riding you know that much past five hours um and here we were really you know <laughs> struggling uh, to ride anywhere near that um and the story that we have for for Roubaix was such a contrast we're at 60k of pretty much just um, flat roads uh, with no cobbles um, and you know the group, the the start of the uh, of the actual event, the the commentator was introducing uh, a lot of the uh, riders, and he could see you know we had eleven Trivello riders all in the same kit. It was a, fine, a fair intimidating start line because we were right at the start, and um, there was a lot of uh, German and French and Belgium riders who were kind of eyeing us off. And and after about twenty or thirty k, it looked like there was only maybe 40 riders left out of the whole um, peloton that started of, you know, a couple of thousand. Um, And, and so, so the race, the race become almost everybody against the Trivello group. Um, And it was, it was a great experience. And I really felt like our group understood about concentration and what to do and making decisions, exactly what we're talking about here. Um, and you know, we had a little bit of fun with it early and, um, a couple of attacks up the road and a couple of dummy attacks and making the other guys chase. And, and so we had, you know, few of our guys go one at a time and it, it was good fun. And, and then finally it got really serious when we hit, hit the cobbles properly in Aaron first. And it was just riders going everywhere, bottles flying off bikes. Bikes flying onto the, onto the dirt. Under it, it was chaotic. Chaos is all I can describe it. And it was such a contrast from Flanders, where this time we are actually racing, 
and and really trying to to really beat the people around you. And that's that's a different way to do a grand fondo. And it's not the way that we've been doing it uh, over the last period of time that I've taken riders. And it was it was really fun to do it this way um, for the first time. And and it was great watching all you guys uh, up the road. Um, and a couple of times, a uh, couple of our riders got got distance from the front group so we rode back rode them back onto the group which was which was really fun to do and and eventually um the group really got narrowed down after about three or four sectors of cobbles down to i don't know how many was it jordan 15 riders yeah there's still just a strong maybe, 20 yeah maybe 20 um of which we had five or six mm-hmm. um in that group um and then we had it was a really it was it was five or six of us, and then there was this German team of five riders, and then it was all individuals. But it was pretty interesting with you know team versus team. Um, yeah, and yeah. and then then you've got the you know the luck factor where um, Julian you know last seen flipping onto the onto the cobbles on his side, and then um, John Cartwright doing a full. Uh, somersault on his bike and landing on the soft grass and standing up and continuing riding and um, and then unfortunately Joe um, hitting the deck and and breaking his collarbone and actually getting back on his bike and continuing to ride the rest of the race with a broken collarbone which is pretty impressive um, right and right of the day not, for a, me. not not a complaint um, mm. you know just got on with it um, and the good thing I you know I want to tell everybody out there was the the camaraderie you had amongst the group was um if someone was in trouble one rider was staying with them and you know we had um dave from perth who's who's uh who you know sacrificed his whole race to stay with joe to make sure he was okay um which is pretty pretty uh big effort when he was in the middle of a race himself so you know i got a big shout out to that and they're decisions that you make on the spur of the moment when you know that one of your mates is in trouble um and it, you know it was, it was a pretty bad crash joe had and um and for him to get back on his bike was pretty impressive but to have dave stay with him um and sacrifice his opportunity up the front uh, was pretty impressive but but taking away from that you know once the race started to go um you had to make a decision yourself, and you, I know you don't want to talk about this, but this, and this is not the reason why we're bringing this up. But uh, but for you to go up the road by yourself with fifty k to go, um, what was going through your mind when that when that decision came to you? Came to your your thought process? How did that come about? Yeah, um, I'm keen to uh, give a good summary of of our eleven riders as well. What, what you started with, but um, yeah, I'll answer these questions. Um, yeah, it's it, it was interesting because the two German guys, um, the pace was the pace was quite slow in between the cobble sectors just after those first few. And I actually said to Nick, I said, this is too slow. There's too many riders who are getting dropped on the cobble sectors, but they're getting back on in between. So I said, after this next sector, we need to start you know, ramping up the pace in between and working together. Um, and finally, when I said that, um, the next sector, two of the German guys launched a big attack in the in-between and we closed them down and then... Uh, on that next sector, I just decided I'd put the pressure on it to see what happened. And I ended up gapping um, the German guys that just attacked. And it got to the end of the sector and I had a fair gap. And exactly what you're saying, I, I turn around and um, obviously our Trivela riders are sitting behind them because they're not going to chase me down. Um, that's just awesome cycling teamwork. They're keeping the two German guys on the front. The three other guys had been dropped completely. They were another 100 meters back or so. Um 
So there's two German lefts and three Traveller riders. And um, again, it's those snap decisions. I turn around and go, okay, this is the position. The Traveller guys aren't going to chase me down. It's going to be up to those two Germans. I look down, there's 50K to go. And yeah, you go, well, what do you do here? Um, and I think that's one of the things you've taught is that you know, in a race when it's time to go, you just got to go. You can't hesitate and and sit back and you know, let them catch back on. And so I just thought, um, here comes a 50K time trial. <laughs> um, on the Roubaix Coggles. Uh, let's see what we can do. Um, and also in my head, I thought that um, if they brought me back, it's just perfect for the team because then one of our other guys can just go because um, they've just been sitting in. So it was a win-win situation, I think. Yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great summary because you know one of our riders had to do something um, if we're going to race this race as a team, and that's what team tactics is. So someone has to go up the road. It could stick. 50k out's pretty long way for it to stick, in my opinion, and it probably won't won't last. But but if you keep riding at a threshold that's sustainable and even, the people behind are always going to be on off on off. So the rider who rides consistently against a group of riders who are riding on off on off, we see this all the time in the pros. Where how can one rider stay away from a pack of twelve? It doesn't seem logical, but that's what happens almost every time. And and so I know talking to you afterwards that was your mindset of if i just keep riding at my threshold for as long as i can i'm going to open up this gap and and you know you're hoping that's what's going to happen and but when it comes into reality it's kind of exciting because a lot of the sectors in roubaix you can look across the fields and see see because you turn left and right in a lot of the you know some of the, the actual cobble sectors aren't straight um yeah, and it's they, open they do field a complete, as well flat open yeah. field so. And they do a complete right angle so you can see across to see how close or how far the bunch is from you. So you're getting feedback instantly from, not from race radio, but just from looking. Um, mm. And so, you know, what was your feeling like when you could see that the gap was growing every time you got to the next sector and, and all of a sudden they're coming out of sight? What, what were your thought processes about how to ride that next section? Yeah, it was really encouraging to see the gap growing. Uh, that was one thing and I found that in the early sectors I was quite strong on the cobbles I was riding them really well um, and even when I got away it wasn't that I didn't actually attack I just I just put real big pressure on and that was enough to get a gap so I thought well I'm riding the cobbles really strong and so like you said I, I, I picked my number for um, the 50k I said this is about what I think I can hold for 50k um, and I was riding a little bit more conservatively in the in-between bits because I knew that we're probably going to be riding even pace in those parts. And I knew I could gain time on the cobbles. So I was conserving a little bit so I could hit each cobble section. And I was basically just riding those flat out and allowing my heart rate to get up. Uh, at this you know, 50K, there was 13 sectors left or something. So I thought, all right, I've got 13 efforts to do basically. And the last three are actually quite short. So I knew there was basically 10 serious efforts and... I was kind of going, not absolute max, but on each of those sections, willing to go quite over threshold um, and just for those few minutes of what they were and then in between, use that to recover, probably sit just below threshold um, and try and ride consistently. And the logic behind that is try and make up the most time when it's hardest as if the sections are an uphill and then the in-between sections um, are uh, the metaphor of a downhill where if we're riding relatively even power, they might be going slightly faster than me, but they're not going to, they could make, be making up five or 10 seconds or so, but I'm going to be making up more than that on the cobble. So that was kind of my mindset. And 
and that's that's actually everything we've done on podcasting for um, for how to ride well in uh, time trial. And it's amazing in a cycling event, you've had to use your time trial knowledge to actually benefit you in, in the long run. So when the bike's going slowest, that's the time when most time can be made up. And so on the cobbles, the bike is going slowest. And so that's the period where you're going to put your most biggest efforts in. When when you're on the, the bitumen where, you know, it's not as hard, the time gap between – and I, I looked up Strava compared to what – my little group was doing compared to a lot of the front guys and on the on the flat sections we were riding similar speed but what the difference was on the harder sections the the better guys were putting 10 20 30 seconds in each sector whereas on the the easy sections they were putting two or three seconds into us and you know those two or three seconds sure they do add up over 20 sectors but not as much as 20 sectors of times 15 seconds or 20 seconds it's phenomenal the difference so when the when the bike is going slowest it's that's the hardest period it's either a headwind or or cobbles in this place or or uphill and and that was really intelligent riding and and that's kind of what kept you give, getting more distance between them uh and where you were and as the time f- goes down in in the race you're actually you know, getting a better outcome every single time you get to the hardest section. So you're adding more time onto them. So, and, you know, you won't tell anybody, but you had to get off your bike and unravel your tube that had fallen out the back of your um, saddlebag and it was wrapped around the the, uh, the rear derailleur. Break, yeah. um, <laughs> um, so, you know, that, that panic, that can cause all sorts of problems, but you were off the bike for – a minute or two and and you still didn't see them in sight so that would have been another reaffirming of i have got a really decent gap here um how w- was that what was happening when you were when you're off your bike going on oh, could not this couldn't come at a worse time to, yeah. to have this little mini mechanical i just i just love everything about rubay because of this we had 11 riders and every single person had a different story about what happened and that is just the race to a t and we saw, saw that in the pros you know just stuff it's just chaos going on everywhere and i was so pumped because um as the k's were ticking down you know i just i couldn't see the gap behind i had no idea what it was um but you get to there's a lead motorbike and you get to ride behind them and it really feels like you're a pro because you know and they're very good at not letting you draft. I was really trying to get close to him and he's, he was making sure he was staying 40 metres up the road. But, um, you know, you've got this lead motorbike in front of you and you're absolutely hyped. And this was um, getting towards the, one of the last few sectors. Um, and, yeah, the it's, it's insane to me that this actually happened. Um, my saddlebag came loose and fell into my wheel and the tube came out of my saddlebag and wrapped itself around my disc brake. Um, and for that to happen just shows the violence of what's happening on the cobbles. You know, this, your saddlebag is wrapped so tightly around the bottom of your seat, you know, and it's it goes under the little um, metal parts of your seat and it's wrapped through a clip and Velcroed on. For you to thread it through the clip, it's quite fiddly. You know, you really have to fiddle it through mm. there and wrap it around and pull it tight. For the bike to be shaking so much that the Velcro, not only the Velcro comes off, but it gets through that little gap and falls off my seat. Um, to me, that was just shocking. I couldn't believe that, that that actually happened. And it was also infuriating because I, I didn't know if they were 40 seconds behind or three minutes or, um, and I had to jump off and I'm 
desperately ripping this tube out of my um, disc brake, thinking this is my gap gone, you know, this is my chance at the race win gone, trying not to panic but getting super frustrated. Little did I know that um, Nick had actually, our Trivelo guy, um, who's been on the podcast before and he's actually our cycling coach at Trivelo, was um, coming across. So he was in between, um, he was second, he was in between me and um, the chase group. Um, and he actually came past me and he didn't see me and I didn't see him as I'm on the side of the road. And this, I guess this is a representation of how chaotic it seems. Um, and also there's the 70K riders are kind of in between us. So sometimes they're on the course as well. Um, so he came past me. Um, so I didn't know I'd lost the lead. Uh, I thought once I got it undone, I couldn't see the chase group. And I thought, shit, I must have a decent gap here because they still haven't come. I got back on the bike next sector i passed nick and i didn't see him uh, he's had a he's had a puncture <laughs> so he's gone into the lead and then had a puncture and he's on the side of the road fixing that and sees me go past him and he he's bewildered because he's like how did i get in front of jordan when he we both didn't see each other which is fucking hilarious we talked about it after the race and um so th- again this just represents roubaix but you know he took the lead of the race and then he got a puncture and i, I retook the lead um and yeah that was just um a representation. I think to summarize our 11 riders, we had um, multiple bottles lost in the first 50 meters of Arenberg. There was there was six bottles lost or something. They just popped out of the bike. Um, we had five punctures. We had two mechanicals. We had four crashes. Like you said, three of which were the people were okay, obviously banged up a bit, a bit of blood, um, a lot of mud, um, but okay. And then one broken collarbone. Um, and as, as we said, Dave really sacrificed himself to uh, make sure everyone else was okay. And he was the one that actually stopped next to Nick and helped him fix his tire. Um, and again, this comes back to the kind of tubeless versus tubes issue we were talking about um, where, uh, you know, th- those of us that had tubeless um, didn't uh, didn't have a puncture bad enough that stopped us during the race. And um, that at the end of the night, when we unpacked our bikes from the van, you know, eight hours later from the race, uh, my back tire was dead flat and so something had obviously happened during the race but the tubeless um tire had allowed it to stay up um whereas anyone that was getting punctures uh, or pinch flats with tubes in was having to stop on the side of the road and, and fix that um, and so for a lot of the group we kind of summarized that that's a big indication that it's you know probably a big advantage to race especially in that kind of race but any race with tubeless because it could um stop you from um having to sit on the side of the road and, and potentially give up the race. Uh, and I don't know what um, what the pros were doing, whether they're tubeless or not. And sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes with those cobbles, and this is what we're talking about at the start with how fast the pros are, ride, are riding, sometimes those cobbles are hitting the wheels so hard that it's going to cause a flat no matter what. Um, and I tell you what, sometimes some of the bumps that you were hitting, uh, I was just going, how are my wheels were still okay here? You know, you would hit some jagged rogs just rocks just full pelt um just straight into the edge of them and i just go how did that not pop my tire just then and turns out the rear the, the rear wheel copped it enough that it did go flat but it got me through um the race but yeah anyway i just wanted to summarize the 11 kind of ex- different experiences the riders had and how much that represents you know the freaking crazy hell race that is Rebay. <laughs> well we i'm not going to let you get away with this because the race did continue and um uh at, at this point now you're back in front and um you've passed nick and uh he's had the, the puncture which would have been fantastic had both of you been able to to ride in together um but you've still got how far to go was it from that point yeah from that point um 
uh, that was the that was three sectors to go, um, and the fourth last sector is the hardest one. It's the five star. It's Col de la Fleur or something. It's where Carrefour de Labra. Car- Carrefour de Labra. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> That's where Vanderpol attacked. It's where Deckengol crashed. It's where Van Art actually attacked first, got his puncture, then Vanderpol went over him. And that sector is yep. just messed up how hard that is. And then <laughs> you get a 100-meter break and then you hit the next sector, which is just brutal. Um, and then there's two kind of tamer sections left and then it's a, a 12K ride to the finish. Um and after I got back on the bike and and saw that the chase, I couldn't see the chase group still. Um, I thought this is great. I've lost a couple of minutes there changing my bike, but I didn't know Nick had gone past. But I thought, but I'm still in the lead. And the motorbike actually didn't see Nick either because uh, he stayed in front of me. So, um, which was interesting. Um, but I thought I'm still in the lead. I couldn't see them coming, which means I must have put you know three or four minutes into them. Um, and so I just thought, just ride hard here. Um, and you're going to get to Velodrome first, which was pretty exciting. And I spoke to you about it after. You, you just, you can see how you know people talk about the, um, this kind of mythical power surge you get when you're in the front of a race, or uh, they talk about in the Tour de France when you know people get extra power when they're wearing the yellow jersey. But you get that hyped energy, and suddenly you can ride harder. And um, this is not just a club race we're talking about. We we are actually on a on the course that has the velodrome Paris Roubaix to finish, so mm. it's it's a little bit different. So the adrenaline's going to be a little bit different than riding at the back of Warrigal in a club race. And I'll be um, honest, that, that's what was hyping me up so much. I was just getting so amped thinking about <laughs> riding into the velodrome. Um, it was just a really- so you're still you're still following the the motorbike and uh, yeah and. And you get, you must get to a point with four k to go, three k to go, because a, it's a really special finish at uh, at Roubaix. It comes down this avenue, um, and you go down, and as you've seen, people see it on telly. You know, you go down the middle of the avenue, and and you swing with one k to go around, and you eventually make your way into the into the velodrome, and it's a it's a it's almost surreal. You know, even when you're coming four hundredth in the race. It still feels fantastic. What was the feeling you were having when you finally got your bike onto the velodrome? Yeah, uh, it is just, just fucking awesome to be honest. Um, I rode, I rode that fifty k as hard as I've ever ridden anything. Um, and when I went through the last sector, I did, I, ex- I kept turning around, and I expected at any time you know, Nick or someone to be coming around the corner and the group be chasing. I just kept thinking, they're a group, you know, they're going to be stronger than me. Um, I was expecting them to come at any point and it, it still come down to a sprint finish or something. And in that last 12K, I just ignored my power threshold and just rode as hard as I could. And I was just going harder and harder. Um, and legs really, really started to fade in the last couple of K. And I was just thinking, you just got to keep it together here. You know, don't, don't hit that wall and get past um i'd had a really bad experience at, at uh, a club race before we left where i got past i did try to do a solo breakaway and i got past on the line um <laughs> and, and lost the win which was i just had that in my head and so um i was really just riding as hard as i possibly could and then it's really like you said it's really fun you're following the, the pro course obviously and you know you do this right turn into the 
kind of velodrome area and then it's a few turns and there's a big atmosphere around because the um, women's race was on after us and so they came through a few hours later and so people were already out in the course and um, there was heaps of people around the, the Roubaix village and um, the actual velodrome itself. Um, so it was a really cool atmosphere and the bike peels off like it does you know, in a, in a pro race where all the cars go off to the left and then you turn right into the actual velodrome. And I was just so hyped and um, I heard the French announcer announcing and got the crowd hyped, obviously. And there was there was a crowd there on the bank watching the finish um, and they were all cheering and clapping. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was honestly the best feeling I've ever had on the bike and went around the corner and I... Um, there's cameras and stuff, and I, I sat up on the on the bike and pointed to the Travelo jersey and <laughs> with, with my hands up. I was, uh, it was fucking awesome. It's funny uh, hearing you say that. And look, riding that last lap on the velodrome, it's it's pretty special. And by the way, the velodrome is got steep banks for those yeah. who don't, don't realize. Yeah. It, it's yeah. it's it's a fair income velodrome, and it's a, it's a big velodrome. It's almost I think it's over four hundred meters around, which is way bigger than the velodromes we ride in at home, but. But yeah, um, we have joked over the years about what would be your winning salute, um, and that was a classic. You sat up with no hands and and put your your hands across your trivalo thing, and uh, we all had a great laugh. And and uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it was fantastic to see uh, you actually get get the victory there, and uh, it was almost felt like a bit of a team thing when we got to the finish. And absolutely. Um, and uh, to get second and third, so we got mm. first, second, and third. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, Nick uh, had to walk; um, <laughs> couldn't repair his tire, um, yeah. so he had to walk two or three k and got a, got a lift from some other car and had to walk another section. And um, so there were so many epic stories. But uh, yeah, congratulations to you on uh, on winning a, a Paris Roubaix Grand Fondo when it uh, it was it was one of the more outstanding rides I've seen. Um, um, from your good self, so uh, well done. No, I appreciate it. And uh, the joking thing is so true. We we joked about, oh, imagine if you you were ever getting into there first, what would you do? And I I just couldn't believe that, even though it's a Grand Fondo and it's not it's not a serious race and it's not you know a massively deep field to enter the velodrome leading a race, it just um, is so cool. But I will challenge that and say that I think the ride of the day still goes to Joe because he broke his collarbone with fifty k to go or fifty five k to go. Um, and I remember complaining to myself in the third last section, just going, "My hands are so sore. Um, I could, I was just, I could barely hang on to the handlebars. I just felt like they were so sore. And I was just, you just, I'm like, please get off these sectors. Um, and I thought I was doing it tough. And then Joe's behind, you know, riding the same sectors with a broken collarbone, and he rode that whole last 55k. Um, and he put himself into a really deep state. And he wasn't in a good way when he finished the race because he put he'd gone so deep. Um, he was actually his body actually went into a bit of shock, and um, his front tire punctured really badly with three k to go. So he ended up walking the last three k himself as well. So we had two riders walking, and he walked into the velodrome, and he was in that much pain. And the, the announcer uh, walked up to him and kind of asked him what happened because he's you know he's seen this guy walk in and. Joe can barely speak and he's trying to say he's got a puncture and the guy's asking questions and, and Joe's kind of in that much pain. He's almost non-responsive and there's an epic photo of Joe walking around one of the bank uh, and he made sure he walked all the way through the finish and it was just one of those moments that um, was incredible to see. Hard to watch because you don't want to see one of your friends and a rider um, in that position um, but the mental toughness to do that for me was um, a pure representation of what the Roubaix race is about, I think. Mm. 
Mm. And there was nothing stopping Joe from finish that, finishing that race, was there? His determination to get to the finish, you know, he'd have to be run over by a truck uh, for him not to get to that finish line. And, uh, and you, know, no, you know, he ended up in the ambulance in hospital, you know, six hours, you know, straight after Roubaix and uh, it dampened it for him, but he still smiles and says it's the best and most epic thing he's ever done and, uh, and you know, he, he wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, and that's what, that's what uh, trips like this is all about, the experience and their stories that uh, you guys will have forever and, um, you know, everybody in our little group on that one day has a story to tell and, and whenever they watch Roubaix in the future, they'll, they'll know almost every bump and, and cobble and sector and, and that's what's fun about uh, going and doing these events because it's the exact same course as what the pros do and, and you get to sort of mini experience it in your own dreams um, um, of what, what it's like and, and it, it is as hard as it looks and, um, and it looks – it looks hard, but I think it's way harder than it looks. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I've you know I, I just I, it's something you can't explain to people. You've just got to experience how hard it is, and and the only way to, to describe the cobbles are they're violent. Yeah, <laughs> and, and I just can't imagine how the bike stays together. That's one of the things. Um, I think yeah, I think for me the the best way to describe it is the fact that my saddlebag came off. I just still can't comprehend that, um, and also the fact that. Um, we all lost our bottles in the first 50 meters of the first cobble sector of the day. I think that just shows um, shows what's happening to the bikes. And last detail I want to touch on, and this is Joe again, but um, just again kind of shows what's happening in the chaos of the race. But he lost both his bottles in Arenberg and there's still 90K to go when you hit that first sector, 95K to go, and you can't do that 95K without nutrition. And he actually in between rode up ahead um, Started, like went off the front and he said to me, I'm going to go off ahead and get to the feed station early and pick up two bottles because there's feed stations where you can top up on stuff and refuel. But because we were racing, we weren't stopping at the feed stations. Everyone was just, you had to get through the 148K with whatever you were carrying or, or you were going to miss the group. Um, and he went off and the German team started getting really edgy and I just went up to them and said, um, oh, he's lost both his bottles. He just wants to get ahead and get to the feed station. And I didn't know how they would react, and but they said, no, oh, that's okay. And so they backed off the pace and let him go off the front, um, which could have been an interesting race tactic if you were lying or making it up, but <laughs> they trusted that. And <laughs> the, he, uh, he actually got to the feed station and he came out of there as we were riding past. So um, it was good timing. But I think that, yeah, I wanted to finish on that story because it, it really does um, summarize kind of everything that's happening. So we've spoken a lot about the Spring Classics. Uh, it was epic. I think it's so worth talking about because the – all the lessons you learn from watching these races just apply to your own personal experience and then you can you can learn these things and then when you find yourself in that position to race, even if you haven't been there before, you've seen the pros do it. So you can kind of take that and emulate it. I think it's as you said, it's it's so worth sharing and understanding. Yeah, and and that's exactly right, George. The there's so much you can learn from every event that you go in and, and the spring classics are an extreme example of uh, lessons that are hard to learn. Um, you make a few mistakes there and the, the, the consequences are quite huge. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of those ones where mechanical and we've seen it in the pro peloton, mechanical issues can play a role and you've just got to be um, adapt at uh, trying to make the best out of a, a bad situation and, um, and you know, trying to get your your equipment as, as good as possible and you can still make mistakes with that. You know, we, the pros still have punctures 
um, and still have things go wrong. So, you know, you can't prepare for every single thing, but, you know, attention to details could be not more important than on days like these. So, so everything we're trying to get across here is to explain that, you know, there are, there are lots of things that, that, uh, contribute to having a great experience as a bike rider or, or any athlete, but, but it's just not about the fitness all the time. The fitness is, is the key ingredient to everything we do. The fitter you are, the more choices you have. I'm convinced of that, but, but it's not everything. And, and if, if you have that, that willingness to race and, and desire to, to put yourself on the line and take risks and, and be aggressive, you will nine times out of ten be more effective. Um, and that sounds quite different to a triathlon um, uh, tip that I would give because in triathlon you need to be the opposite. You need to be patient um, because the endurance events are not built for aggression. You, you need to be more a patient type of rider who's really following the numbers. Whereas in events like this, you know, you really need to to think strategy. Um, and there is strategy in triathlon. Don't let, don't let me think that that's not what I'm saying. Um, the strategy is to be more even. Um, and the strategies in, in an event like the Grand Fondos that we do, whether it's Roubaix or Flanders or, or any of your local Grand Fondos, it's, it's to be uh, tactically uh, conserving and, and being ready to give your aggression when it counts. And, and, you know, you can make the difference between winning and losing if you, if you really think carefully about um, um, the timing and, 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 and when to attack. And that, that's kind of the, the key thing, I think, from if you can get anything from what we talked about is, is making good decisions with aggression um, will we'll normally get a good result. Spot on. Uh, yeah, I just think um, there's so much to learn, as I said before, from um, watching these and um, there's tactics and everything. And uh, yeah, I guess the, the summary lesson is exactly everything you just said then. It's, and it's concentration and it's, it's physical fitness as well as um, mental ability. And um, that's what it seems to come down to. So that's it for this Spring Classics edition of the, ep- uh, the episode. Um, thank you very much for listening as always and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.